You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, April 8th. I'm Arcelia Martin. And I'm Kate Stockram. Today, our show explores the challenges of reopening New York City a year into the pandemic. In Greenwich Village, the community has rallied to keep historic gay bars open. LGBT people need their space to be who they are. And in Harlem, jazz clubs are reopening. Musicians young and old are gathering in one of the city's oldest venues to carry on a long-standing tradition. We're all here together. You give your life to this jazz because it's like a cause. It's American music. It's not just bars. Coney Island's beloved amusement park reopens today, too. We'll also take a look at what's included in New York's delayed state budget and hurdles facing high school athletes hoping to play sports in college. Yeah, I'm nervous, but at the same time, I'm very confident that that I'll play college basketball. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Fei Lu. On Wednesday, NYPD's Hate Crimes Task Force arrested a man believed to be responsible for multiple physical assaults against Asian victims in Brooklyn. The victims include a 77-year-old man, a 65-year-old woman, and a 32-year-old woman. NBC New York's Paige Zi Chang interviewed Leona Lau in Midwood, Brooklyn. We just walk around, even though, you know, that guy happened on 11 o'clock in the morning. It's not 11 p.m. You don't feel safe at all. It's terrible. Like, like are we all senior? As of Thursday, there have been 37 reported incidents of anti-Asian attacks in New York, compared to zero reported attacks last year. Members of the right-wing provocateur group Project Veritas stormed into Columbia Journalism School's Pulitzer Hall today. As Cat Smith reports, they demanded a meeting with a professor. James O'Keefe is the founder of Project Veritas. He arrived at Columbia with an entourage of seven and a video camera. I really don't know, you sir. You've heard of Project Veritas before? I've heard of Project Veritas, yes, I'm sir. I'm sure you know who I am. O'Keefe said he came to speak with Professor Bill Gruskin. Gruskin writes for the Columbia Journalism Review. O'Keefe said the professor had reached out to his lawyer to discuss the group's ongoing defamation lawsuit against the New York Times. So you came down here to talk to them in person? Uh, yeah. You have a problem with that? The group apparently did not have an appointment, and they left the building as security arrived. Kat Smith, Columbia Radio News. Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that starting Monday, New York City schools will need to follow new guidelines before going remote. Schools can only conduct 10 days of remote classes if there have been four or more COVID-19 cases in multiple classrooms. We believe this new approach is going to keep everyone safe, but also keep schools open a lot more steadily uh, through April, May, June. Previously, schools could switch to remote operations if there were only two confirmed cases. New Yorkers' access to COVID-19 vaccines continues to improve. People aged 75 and older can now access 26 vaccine sites without an appointment, when accompanied by an eligible escort. And qualifying adults over 65 can also request free transportation to and from vaccine sites in the city. Good news for beach lovers, New York City's public beaches will be reopening on May 29th, just in time for Memorial Day. Outdoor pools will also reopen on June 26th. It's a sunny day in the city with highs of 66 degrees in the afternoon and lows of 46 degrees at night. Friday is looking cloudy with colder temperatures. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Fei Lu. The New York State Legislature just passed next year's fiscal budget last night. In that bill, there's some $2.4 billion allocated for the COVID-19 Emergency Rental Assistance Program. This is New York's second attempt to provide pandemic rental assistance after initiating the program last year. Today we have Catherine Fung, a reporter and producer at WNYC. She's reported on New York State's rental relief program. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for talking with us. Hi, thanks for having me. 
So what will $2.4 billion do for New York renters? So many people I've talked to have lost their jobs or had their hours cut back during the pandemic, and they just don't know how they're going to pay rent. I talk to people who owe upwards of 12 months of rent at this point. Their bills are $18,000, $19,000 and not having had relief for all this time. This program is meant to help renters with the amount that they owe uh, in rent during the pandemic and also with utilities bills that they owe. And supporters of this bill say that this is going to cover the entirety of the back rent that is owed in New York State. Um, and whether or not that's the case, it's estimated that it would come close at least. You were talking about the program supporters. Are there any people who are opposed to this program? Well, there are critics of the program who say that a lot more outreach has to be done to make sure that communities find out about these applications and know about the program and know how to apply and that it's easy for them to apply. Um, We saw in the uh, previous rent relief program that New York rolled out last year that just because the money is there doesn't mean it will necessarily reach people. Um, The state failed to award um, more than half of that amount last year and it was uh, due to um, you know very strict rules about eligibility and uh, the applications being very complicated. So how will it work this time? So there are eligibility requirements this time. Uh, Households have to demonstrate that they lost income during the year 2020. They have to meet certain income requirements and They have to uh, be rent burdened, meaning that they have to pay 30% of their income or more towards their rent. The bill allows people to sign affidavits uh, as proof of this, as their documentation, whereas in the first round of rent relief, people had to scramble to find all kinds of documentation to prove their eligibility. One important difference that's in this legislation is that people who are undocumented also qualify for this relief this round as opposed to the first round. Um, And that's people were ineligible the first time because of that federal, the way the federal legislation that uh, created this funding was written, uh, but that's been expanded this time around. Gotcha. How soon would renters expect to see that relief? We don't know when the application will be rolled out. The people who uh, wrote the legislation, who sponsored the legislation, had originally wanted uh, a timeline, like a strict timeline written in the legislation for there to be an application available within three weeks. But uh, I don't know if that's in the final legislation. I've been going through it, and I, I don't see that provision anywhere in the final text. Okay. And what about landlords? How does this program affect them? This program pays Uh, relief directly to landlords uh, if tenants apply and are approved. Um, This is a relief that landlords have been asking for for a long time. And importantly, there's one provision that especially affects landlords, and that is that if landlords accept this money, they can't evict their tenants or uh, raise the rent for a year. This has been Catherine Fung, reporter and producer at WNYC. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. New York Muslims are preparing for Ramadan this weekend. It's a month-long fast in which many Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset. 
community leaders are calling for more 24-7 vaccination sites so that those fasting during the day can receive a vaccine once they break fast. Karen Monarajo spoke to one leader who was encouraging his community to get vaccinated ahead of Ramadan. I'm standing on the corner of Fulton and Bedford Avenue outside of the Majid Taqwa Mosque in Bedford-Stuyvesant. The sun is shining and Ramadan is four days away. Before the pandemic, this mosque would be bustling with people, but instead the mosque is closed and under renovation. Some people are gathered at an overflow site for a socially distanced funeral, but for the most part, things feel unusually quiet. Vaccine eligibility has expanded for New Yorkers that are 16 and older, but it's still difficult for many New Yorkers to get inoculated. Once Ramadan starts, Muslim New Yorkers may only have a chance to get vaccinated at dusk once they break fast. Sheikh Ibadwali is executive director of Hillside Islamic Center. And vaccine is the opportunity that God is providing, and it's in line with the message of Ramadan that take care of yourself. Uh, Being involved with so many people, so many organizations, so many jobs, responsibilities, you need to take some time to reflect and gather yourself mentally, emotionally, physically. You need to gather yourself, and that's what Ramadan has been about. But getting a vaccine hasn't been easy. New Yorkers say it's been really confusing. Wally says he's hearing the same in his community. But getting a vaccine hasn't been easy. New Yorkers say it's been really confusing and report confusion on how to book appointments. Wally says he's hearing the same in his community. You know, it's it's unfortunate that uh, we are not, uh, at a government level, we are not equipped enough to provide a central place, uh, systematically being able to uh, apply and um, have individuals access the available vaccines uh, where it's becoming so difficult. It's a jungle. Um. Community leaders like Wali are in a race against time. COVID-19 cases continue to increase throughout the city. In fact, the CDC recently announced that the British COVID variant has become the dominant strain of the virus in the United States. And it's it's been difficult. I've been telling people to go here and then go there and go to this website, go to this location, call this number. So this lack of centralization, and I think that onus is on our uh, government, it's on our, uh, you know, uh, the leaders that we have put in position to ensure that it should be seamless process and it should not be a jungle uh, for people to try and, uh, you know, navigate through. New York City Council member Mark Levine has also called for the city to expand nighttime hours at vaccination sites to accommodate the Muslim community. Karen Maniraho, Columbia Radio News. And now the next installment in our series, New York Moments. Nicole McNulty introduces us to a pharmacist uptown. Because I don't know of no one that has nine toes. Uh, no, me neither. It's usually like eight or ten. At QuickRx on Columbus Avenue and 104th Street, Julia Kravtsova is a supervising pharmacist. I was originally born in Ukraine. I came here when I was two years old, and I grew up in South Brooklyn. I speak fluent Russian. Uh, thanks to this place, I now speak a tiny bit of Spanish. This is a great community pharmacy. The patients that come here have lived in this neighborhood for decades. I mean, even our delivery driver, he's been living in this neighborhood for 50 years. It's definitely a great field. This is where all the stuff goes down, but definitely, I mean, we have our main characters who come in here and they're absolutely hilarious. They make our day. You saw Juan, he was one of them. He's by far top five for sure. Join us for another New York Moment next week. Podcast available Thursdays at 5 p.m.
The past year has been challenging for restaurants and bars. Gay bars are no exception, including the popular Hell's Kitchen bar, Therapy, which closed permanently last year. Fei Lu reports on the challenges facing the city's gay bar scene and how their loss impacts the LGBTQ community. Since the pandemic began, gay bars in New York City have struggled to stay in business. Many bars shut down and now operate with limited hours, but operational costs like rent and employee salaries continue. Helen Buford is the owner of Julius in Greenwich Village, New York City's oldest gay bar. So we closed the day before um, St. Patrick's Day last year, and we remained closed till approximately uh, the end of May, first part of June. I had, at that time, I had 20 employees, and then I had none. Um, so we, we went from from 100% to zero all within overnight, as far as business-wise. Julius has survived, but other bars like Pyramid, Bedlam, and Ninth Avenue Saloon weren't so lucky. It's a common story. I think gay bars have um, some special challenges. Gregor Matson is a professor of sociology at Oberlin College who writes about the history of gay bars. LGBTQ plus business owners are not often as well capitalized um, or connected to banks as are some straight business people. So there's a, a lack of access to emergency funding. There is the fact that many gay bars are run as much as a community resource as they are a business. Andrew Berman is the executive director for the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. He says that for many LGBTQ individuals, gay bars are more than just watering holes. They're often places of performance, uh, music, uh, political organizing in some cases. Um, all of these things often mix in these uh, spaces. Um, and while in our increasingly virtual world, a lot of that can be done uh, not in person, there's ways in which um, some of that can really only be achieved face-to-face. Uh, -face. Berman says members of the LGBTQ community understand how important gay bars are and are rallying to support them financially. I've definitely seen a lot of people pitch in, a lot of people spreading the word about, you know, the, the, the danger that a particular beloved establishment might be in and, and how everyone can help. Like many gay bar owners in the city, Julius Barr's Helen Buford started a GoFundMe page and raised nearly $38,000, which helped pay for staff salaries during the lockdown. Um, and, the, and at first, the GoFundMe that I started was for the employees to be able to help them um, get through that time until unemployment kept in because, you know, a lot of these guys, because they're bartenders or they're waiters or they're cooks, they, they you know a lot of their salary comes from tips. So um, I was concerned for them. Buford says business at Julius Bar is slowly picking up and customers are returning and glad to be back. Fei Lu, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News. More stories to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Arcelia Martin. And I'm Kate Stockram. Next up, we're looking at the pandemic's impact on higher education. 
COVID has thrown a wrench in the recruitment process for college sports, and experts debate the ethics and legality of mandating COVID vaccines for students returning to campus in the fall. All that and more coming up. Cornell University is the latest to join a growing list of American colleges planning to mandate COVID vaccinations for their students. It's a sticky subject for schools, which have to weigh the benefits of increased vaccination against potential burdens on individuals and their freedoms. Dr. Aaron Paquette is a bioethicist and assistant professor of both pediatrics and law at Northwestern University. I asked her, given that vaccine mandates have been around since the early 1900s, why is there still debate around these requirements? So I think with the coronavirus vaccine, a couple of things come up that um, are, are challenging with respect to mandating vaccination. The first is, um, you know, you want to avoid things that are overly burdensome to individuals or put them at um, an undue risk or undue burden. And I think some have objected to um, mandatory vaccination currently because the vaccines that are available are available under emergency use authorization, not yet with formal um, approval. And the, the second is, um, depending on where a mandate is coming into play, is is it the least restrictive way to accomplish um, in, increased vaccination rates and to, to, to meet the goals for whatever environment in which the mandate is being applied. New York State specifically does not allow for non-medical exemptions to school vaccine requirements. Are there specific ethical or legal concerns that arise from that policy? Um, in the setting of various outbreaks, including um, recently measles outbreaks, um, the question of whether places should, uh, states um, or regions or individual schools should allow non-medical exemptions to vaccination um, comes up and, and intermittently as we see flares of vaccine preventable diseases. Um, and so the the American Academy of Pediatrics actually, um, in addition to, to many states that have removed non-medical exemptions, um, has put forth the idea that non-medical exemptions should not be permitted because uh, for vaccine preventable diseases, students should be receiving um, those vaccines where obviously the safety data is, is present. I'm thinking about international students who are uh, in our higher education system, who may be coming from countries where vaccine access is limited. Um, is there an ethical or legal mandate there for co the colleges that are requiring this of them that they should be considering as well? Legally, I think that um, if, if we look at the historic, the, the, the law historically in the United States, um, I think that it, it is legally permissible to put um, mandatory requirements in place. That being said, I think that there are equity issues involved for international students, um, for uh, students who are coming from communities where there is not available in the United States, where there is not ready, um, readily available appointments for vaccination, um, that um, those students will be disproportionately burdened by these requirements. And I guess my, my one last question is really more geared toward your own personal take. Um, you know, what keeps you up at night right now about all of this? If you're asking personally, like what what um, gets at me the most, it, it is really the risk for perpetuating inequities. I think that uh, in all of the policies that we implement, whether it is locally at an institution or more broadly, at a governmental level, I think we have a societal obligation to think about um, not not the limited um, outcome that we're seeking with a policy, and in this case, increased vaccination, but 
um, I think we, we're obligated um, to look at things through a lens of equity. Dr. Paquette is the assistant professor of pediatrics for Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern. She is also an assistant professor at their school of law. Dr. Paquette, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. On average, only about 6% of high school athletes go on to play sports in college. In a normal year, graduating seniors would be signed to their university teams by now. But COVID has disrupted this cycle. Nicole McNulty explores what that means for kids hoping to play collegiate sports. Tyler Sims has been playing basketball since he was nine years old. And like a lot of kids. My dream school is definitely Duke University. You know, I've been watching them since I was little. That's my favorite basketball team. That would be tough enough any year. But with the pandemic, it's even harder. Tyler is a 17-year-old senior guard on the Hoboken High School boys varsity basketball team. Normally, coaches would be in the stands watching him play, but this year, they can't watch in person. So his only way to get in front of them is his highlight reel. He had to make it himself. His friend filmed it. Here's a clip of him making a three-pointer in his red number two jersey. Highlight tapes were always a part of the process. Videos players make and send to colleges. But this year, his video might be his only chance. And his season was shorter. He's played half as many games. Yeah, I'm nervous, but at the same time, I'm very confident that um, I'll be in the hands of the right school. I'm pretty sure that I'll play college basketball. Still, Tyler, like many other kids in the U.S., is now behind the ball. The recruiting process usually looks like this. It's about getting the athlete recognized by a college coach. That's Tim Nevius, a lawyer who works with college athletes on eligibility and other issues. And then that coach making contact with them via email, telephone, uh, and then offering uh, a scholarship or a roster spot or admissions. Nevius says the COVID disruption has created two major problems. One of them is what kids like Tyler are dealing with because of canceled seasons or postponements or the inability of coaches to travel, the athletes aren't actually being seen playing their sports as they normally would. And the second problem? Overloaded rosters. Because of the pandemic, the NCAA extended college players' eligibility. Coaches can hold on to their seniors for another year. That means fewer spots for high school hopefuls. For the incoming freshmen then, that means that they're faced with even a larger roster of juniors and seniors than they otherwise would have been. Take Bloomfield College in New Jersey, a Division II school. Gerald Holmes is the basketball coach there. He's bringing back three of his seniors this fall. That only leaves room for three incoming freshmen. He might be able to take one more, but there's another problem. This year, the rules are more flexible for transfer students. They're bigger, faster, stronger. A lot of coaches would prefer to have a transfer versus a freshman. So high school kids are, are taking the brunt of that. This year, there are many new rules. Each sport and division has their own. And the pandemic changed a lot of them. An already complicated situation is worse. Everyone, from coaches to parents and students, are confused. It's almost like the wild, wild west out there. <laughs> for high school athletes, it's a struggle to stand out. Holmes says he gets at least 100 emails a day from recruiting services and high school players. He agrees the ripples of COVID are going to be felt in the recruiting process for years. 
in reality, this is going to be a, a full cycle of four years because a kid who's a freshman for the, me this year is still a freshman next year. The rules say that if a college player's season was disrupted by COVID, they can play an extra year. As for Tyler, the 17-year-old in Hoboken, he sent his tape to a few schools, but no one knows when he'll find out for sure about making a team. If he doesn't get in this year, he'll wait, keep training, and try again next year. Nicole McNulty, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Kate Stockram. Coney Island's famous amusement parks have been closed for a year and a half, but they'll welcome back visitors for the first time starting tomorrow. Our reporter, Haley Zhao, went down to Luna Park and found that, after being shut down by the pandemic, New Yorkers are already excited for a summer of roller coaster rides and hot dogs. At least most of them. The beach outside of Luna Park is quiet this morning with a few joggers on the broadwalk and couples strolling closer to the water. But tomorrow, it will look a lot different when visitors flood in from all over the city for the park reopening. At least, that's according to the city. Jose Herrera lives in the neighborhood and works at the McDonald's nearby. Last summer, it got pretty busy because people were just ignoring the rules about COVID. So they were just going to the beach regardless. He says he's not excited about the park reopening. Um, so I can imagine how much more difficult it's going to be this year open. when the park's open. <laughs> because we're, cause people weren't really listening to the... The guidelines, and they just sit down, eat, and they just ignore us, and we couldn't really do anything about it. Maya Ostrovsky is standing on the broadwalk nearby. She works at the park, at a stand where people can shoot basketball. She got the call last week that she can have her old job back after not working for a year. She and other staff has been working all week for the big reopening. Easter was like crazy. People were all up in these streets, just like... Like, really busy. I think everyone's hankering for, like, uh, some kind of thing. Anything, really. Unlike Herrera, Ochovsi is happy that the park is reopening. I didn't work all last year, so that was, it was, like, it was pretty stressful, you know? Mm-hmm. It's good work, and it, you get to interact with a lot of people, and you get to be loud and obnoxious, which I really like. Any day that I can work, I do work. David Kim says he'll be here in the crowd tomorrow. I'm gonna, I'm gonna... Visit this park tomorrow, definitely. Kim has been living in the neighborhood for nine years. He's already made plans on how to spend his Friday, trying out all the rides in Luna Park. I wanna, I wanna like uh, try all of them, you know, and spend like three, four hours maybe tomorrow, yeah, with my friends. But Kim says he'll take a pass on the hot dogs tomorrow. He's trying to shake the pandemic weight he's gained in the past year. Haley Zhao, Columbia Radio News. Jazz clubs are reopening, and that means jam sessions are back. A session is more than just a performance. It's a building block of jazz culture, part talent show, part networking event. Young musicians go to learn from older, more experienced players. And jam sessions were made famous right here in New York City. Kat Smith has the story of how musicians are keeping this tradition alive during the pandemic. Red lighting glows inside Minton's Playhouse on West 118th Street in Harlem. Tables covered in white linen are spaced wide for COVID safety. The club was closed for almost a year, but this spring it finally brought back its legendary jam session. That's a live, improvised show where anyone can take the stage. 
It's nine o'clock at night. Josh Morris is playing trumpet with the band. He's 15 and he's here with his mom, but he looks older in his black fedora hat. He traveled here from Washington, D.C. to jam with musicians he's never met before. They're all much older than him. They were just knowledge coming out of their horns and coming out of their mouths when I talked to them. Like, they have so much to say and they just want to teach you. Until recently, musicians weren't allowed to jam in tiny, windowless jazz clubs. Instead, they've mostly been playing online. Because of the pandemic, up-and-coming artists like Josh missed out on practicing in front of an audience, and they weren't mingling with older musicians who could hire them for gigs or give them tips on their playing. But that's not the only reason Josh is here tonight. Minton's has a famous past. I could feel the history. Just jamming with other people is amazing, but jamming in a place like this, Minton's helped change jazz forever. Its jam sessions were a product of the World War II era, when jazz was simple and danceable, like a pop song. Back then, most musicians played their gigs in huge bands, in ballrooms and dance halls. It was their job to entertain, with catchy tunes everyone knew. And that could get boring, so they came to small clubs like Minton's for a break. Here, only four or five guys played at a time. They created new sounds on stage that weren't written down. The music was totally unique every night, but at the time, casual listeners might have found it odd. It's music that was created by musicians for other musicians. Scott DeVoe is a professor of jazz history at the University of Virginia. He says the sessions at Minton's pushed the boundaries of jazz, and that's partly because the club's house band in the 40s was epic. Thelonious Monk, Kenny Clark, sometimes Dizzy Gillespie would stop by. And things could get snobby. These players didn't want to waste their time on musicians who couldn't keep up. DeVoe says they had some brutal methods to weed out amateurs. Things like playing at a faster tempo, things like playing over more complicated chord progressions. So they would just kind of ritually humiliate them. Jennifer Jade Ledesma became artistic director at Minton's during the pandemic. She says jam sessions are still pretty cutthroat, but she's trying to make them kinder to help newcomers rise and excel. We're here for each other. Let's, let's brainstorm and create something in love, not competition, not ego. It's like, yo, guys, we're all here together. You give your life to this jazz because it's like a cause. It's American music. Which is why the club is so happy to welcome 15-year-old Josh from D.C. Josh and his mother are visiting us from D.C. Josh says being on stage with his trumpet again woke him back up creatively. Uh, it's like a relief playing with other people and people like this who are so good, who kind of like can help influence my playing because now I'll go home and, you know, think about what happened tonight and work with it. He left Minton's with a bunch of new phone numbers and emails for the next time he's in town. Kat Smith, Columbia Radio News. And now, a story from our commentary series. Karen Monarajo reflects on a fraught question and the complicated nature of home. I moved to New York last year, and since then, I've met a lot of people. And within the first few moments of meeting someone, there's one question that always seems to come up. It's a question that I never really know how to answer. A tiny little inquiry that I bet you've heard countless times. Where are you from? What I say is, I was born in Canada to Burundian parents, or... 
I'm from Seattle. We moved there after my dad got an H-1B visa. But what I'm thinking is, well, who's asking? And why? Is it the fact that I'm African? Did I pronounce a word wrong? Do they think that I don't belong here? I've always envied people that have quick one-liners to this question. Born and raised here, hometown there. But as I stumble through my responses, sometimes they follow up with this question's trickier cousin. Where's home? If you're an immigrant or a child of immigrants like me, you've likely spent a lot of time trying to decide where you fit in the fabric of this country or responding to people telling you to go back to where you came from. And what does that even mean? When I was a teenager, I lived in Washington State. My family would do a two-hour drive from our home up to Vancouver, Canada. It was like a mini vacation to enjoy the Tim Hortons coffee we really missed. On the drive north, we would prepare for that question from a border official. My mom would coach my dad, don't say Burundi, we're from Washington. And my dad would quip back, I know where home is, how could I forget? But when we pulled up and saw the immigration officer, my dad would fumble his lines. It would be this weird, confusing dance of explaining to a border official which side of the border we belonged. Almost every time, our car would get flagged for something called secondary inspection. The officer would scribble something onto an orange slip, pass it to my dad, and we would get more questions in a holding area while they searched our car. Years later, we got green cards and the inspection stopped, but the tension never really went away. It didn't matter that our home was in America. Being black immigrants put us at risk. All this for a trip to Tim Hortons. What do you do when the place you love and call home doesn't always love you back? Doesn't know what to do with you? I'm not at the border anymore, but I still feel like I'm on the outside looking in. I still get the question and it still makes me uncomfortable. I find myself sizing the person up. To them, it's just a question. To me, it triggers these memories, and it's a reminder I'm still figuring out how I identify and which places shaped who I am. But lately, I'm choosing to believe in the question's opportunity to connect, rather than divide. On the days I want to keep it simple, I just say Washington State. But for those days where there's more time to dig in and interrogate, I explain that home can be many things. Where's home? Well, how much time do you have? Karen Manirajo, Columbia Radio News. Well, that's all for this week on Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Leila Dos ran our show. Senior producer Katie Anastas led our staff of reporters with help from producer Megan Zarez and Jack Truitt. Senior editor Renee Roden and assistant editor Catherine Smith led our copy team. Web producer Nicole McNulty managed our live stream and website. And reporters Haley Zhao and Karen Monarajo brought us today's news. Thanks to our instructors, Sally Herships, Ben Shapiro, and Patty Hirsch. I'm Kate Stockram. And I'm Marcelia Martin. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Thursday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening. See you next week.